Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted to make mention of a couple of things before I introduce the guest for today. As our regular listeners might know, I'm always fascinated to see where people are listening to the show throughout the world, and I'm always curious as to why certain locations seem to be very invested in learning about cult dynamics and systems of control. In some cases, there are obvious historical and sociological reasons why our show might be more popular in certain areas. The societal ramifications of the Holocaust, for example, likely factor into why we have so many listeners in Germany and Israel. And the spread of Nazi occupation throughout Eastern Europe may explain our popularity in places like Poland and the Czech Republic, especially Hungary, where even now fascism is once again on the rise. South Africa is one of the countries in which we are listened to most, a place where, of course, the extreme group think of apartheid surely plays a role in people's curiosity in learning about indoctrination. And we did a few podcast episodes about apartheid. We've heard from a few of our many listeners in Ireland, another country where our popularity continues to rise, who eloquently explain how their country is still in the process of entangling the control the Catholic Church has on society there. What's even more interesting, though, is when we see huge spikes in listenership in smaller communities. One of these less populated places that has continually charted the highest in listenership is Brainerd, Minnesota. This could be related to the 2016 arrest in nearby Pine County of Victor Bernard, the leader of River Road Fellowship, an offshoot of the infamous cult known as The Way. We recently interviewed a survivor of this group, Krista, for a forthcoming episode, so you'll be hearing more on that soon. But if you are a listener from Brainerd, please reach out to us and let us know why you think the podcast resonates so deeply within this small community. Another small town where we consistently have a strong listenership is Eagle Mountain, Utah, a suburban community infamous for its huge population of Mormon polygamists. Mesa, Arizona is also a place where we have many regular listeners and a place with a high concentration of cult activity. It has ties to the Moonies, to Scientology, and hosts a plethora of New Age and UFO-based cults, such as the Global Community Communications Alliance. The Southern Poverty Law Center has also identified multiple neo-Nazi groups from Mesa. And in nearby Phoenix, extremist anti-abortion churches have been profiled in Vice and The Guardian. There are so many examples of our listenership going up in places that either have a history of cultic influence or are suddenly inundated with a dangerous group that we cannot come close to listing them all today. And we don't always even know why there may be a large spike in certain places. However, what we do know for sure is that people all around the world are using our show as a resource to better understand cult dynamics and how to stay safe from systems of control. That important resource is made possible only because of the generous support from our Patreon community. So if you'd like to be a part of keeping this resource available to the people all around the world who need it most, please, please consider making a contribution to the show by becoming a member at patreon.com slash indoctrination. You can always help the show for free by following us and sharing about us on social media. Another especially important way to help us grow our audience is to leave a positive rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts. It's an easy and quick thing to do, but it makes a huge difference in the visibility of the show. Thanks so much to all of our supporters around the world. And feel free, as always, to reach out to us from wherever you listen. We would love to hear from you. Today on the show, we have Tim Elliott. Tim is a senior writer at Good Weekend, the Saturday magazine for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, 
where he's won two Kennedy Awards and been nominated for a Walkley. His work has also appeared in London's The Financial Times, The Sunday Times, and The Australian. He has won multiple awards, including Best Feature at the Australian Magazine Awards and from the Australian Society of Magazine Editors. In 2014, Good Weekend Story by Tim about his father's suicide generated one of the largest reader responses in the history of the Sydney Morning Herald and led to his book, Farewell to the Father. His first book, The Bolivian Times, is an account of six months he spent working on an English-language newspaper in South America. His latest project is a nine-part true crime podcast called Inside the Tribe, about a Christian fundamentalist sect called the 12 Tribes. If you have any tips or comments in regard to his podcast or the group it covers, feel free to email Tim at insidethetribepod at gmail.com. Here's Tim now. For today, we have Tim Elliott with us, who has been up to something really important, putting something out there that is really remarkable in that it takes so much research and uh, probably pushback putting these things out. But it's so important for the same reason that I do this podcast, informing the public about things that exist that they should know about. And so I want to welcome you to the show. Good to see you. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. I'm glad to be here. And so tell us where you are uh, speaking to me from. I'm speaking to you from a suburb called Freshwater in Sydney, which is a lovely beachside suburb in the northern suburbs of of Sydney. So it's um it's in the middle of our summer here. It's very, very hot summer at the moment. So I'm glad I'm living here, that's for sure. <laughs> right. I'm sure. Thank you so much. I know it's an ungodly hour at the moment and for you. And so I truly appreciate this. So tell us a little bit about what brings you here and what you're working on. And then also to describe what your interest is in this particular group. Okay. I'm a senior writer at a magazine called Good Weekend, which is the Saturday magazine for the Sydney Morning Herald and newspaper in Sydney and the Age newspaper in Melbourne. So Good Weekend covers everything from politics, culture, current affairs, any sort of stuff like that, profiles, big long features about sort of 4,000, 5,000 words long. Get a lot of time to write them. Very lucky like that. And we have about a, a readership of about a million people in print and online every week. So it's a great job in that I can get a lot of time to unpack issues in detail and then I can reach a lot of people as well. So um, I'm very lucky that way and glad to be working there. Very nice. And so tell us about your interest in this particular group. Okay. So what happened was how I got into this. I was working for the newspaper back in 2008 and I'd written a story about exit counsellors programs just because I was really I can't remember now I was just interested in it and it was a new actually a news story and the next the next week I got a call from a guy called Matthew Klein Aussie guy who said to me oh uh, I saw your article I have a pretty remarkable story if you want to listen to it it's about a group called the 12 tribes and I was like okay uh it turned out that what had happened to him was he joined this you know high control group not knowing of course that it was a cult in Sydney, uh, he thought it was uh, sort of a communal Christian group. Turned out it was an extremely high control coercive outfit called the 12 Tribes. They essentially ruining his life and dividing his family. And he ended up after a couple of years in Canada, in Manitoba, or Winnipeg, I think it was, being thrown out of the commune. He lost his kids. He lost contact with his wife. So it bust up his family. And it was a really moving story. And I decided to cover it. And it went all from there, basically, my involvement with the 12 tribes. That's where it began. I remember years ago having two fathers who were brothers and uh, their children. 
in my office in LA and they had escaped from Waco, the Branch Davidians. And their wives had stayed. And so these boys were motherless and we were trying to figure out how to get the, the wives out. And there was the sense that they needed to stay because that's what God wanted of them. Uh, I think there are a lot of women too who are kind of hoping to be chosen as the next partner of a leader in the group where then they'll have safety. Who knows why? But women in these groups are so beaten down. I mean, men are too, but they're so beaten down and made to feel that they really are not going to have lives outside of it and they can't function and they don't have a say, don't have rights. And so for a lot of women who I've talked to who have come off of communes, et cetera, uh, and talk about really feeling non-existent and that they had to also choose the leader and the teachings over any other alliance, any other alliance, even with their children. Yeah, exactly the same thing with 12 tribes. And especially, I think it's particularly powerful with 12 tribes because it's a fundamentalist Christian group with really strong ideas about headship of the family and the husband and the father being the head of the household. And there's no getting around that. Women very much are, I don't know a lot about, the Amish, but from what I understand, it seems to be quite similar. Women are just um, uh, very much property and they're there to do the cooking, the cleaning, the child rearing, and that's about it. You know, they don't have a hell of a lot of say and their identity is very much subsumed by the group and by the elders who are almost universally men. Right. So I want to make sure to talk about the, the project that you've worked on I wanted to talk first, just so people understand about the group and what it is and who it is. And I mean, it had an interesting beginning with the leader being, I think he was a carnival barker, a carnival worker. Yeah, it's an incredible story. I mean, this group, I've since come to know a few different, into contact with a few different uh, groups. And in my work, I meet all kinds of people and, and really... This group and uh, Eugene Spriggs, who's the leader, uh, or Yonek, which was his cult name, really takes the cake <laughs> for eccentricity and dangerous indoctrination. So his Eugene Spriggs was in Chattanooga, brought up in Chattanooga. In the 70s, he brought up in a very Christian household. His dad worked in a carpet factory. Uh, Eugene grew up kind of a bit of loose unit, smoking, drinking a bit. I mean, nothing unusual, but by the standards of a very Christian outfit, Christian family, absolutely abominable. He went to school, became a bit of a football hero. Uh, he was a good-looking guy, tall, burly, good-looking guy. Left school, um, joined the army, uh, left the army, worked in his father's carpet factory, uh, became a school guidance counsellor. Or, you know, his career was pretty, pretty crazy. And then he, yeah, like you say, he joined at the request of a friend. He took over, briefly took over a carnival ride and was a carnival barker. And at the carnival, uh, he he was watching the crowd. He saw the, uh, the terrible state of humanity as he regarded it. And he thought, okay, I've got to do something about this. You know, the youth's terrible these days. There's all sorts of ungodliness going on and he started to um get heavily into into god more and he was walking down a beach in santa barbara he he moved around uh in california and he had a revelation he collapsed on on the beach in santa barbara and uh he believed that god was talking to him telling him to start his own ministry so in the early 70s he did he did so, and he just wanted to get away from established religion, do something that was more attractive to the youth. He wanted a youth ministry uh, that would talk more directly to young people about God and especially how God was before established religion. So he wanted his idea with the 12 tribes was to raise a group of people who would live like Christians lived in the first century AD, before the um, before um before you know the catholic church came into being before established religion was there so these group of uh, apostles disciples wandering around 
just being themselves, looking after one another and praising God, okay? So he was looking to strip back um, the church, strip back religion to its basis. To do this, he, over the years, uh, he had started the church up in a series of houses in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then basically began attracting young people and it did better and better and he had rap nights. Uh, It was very informal, great food and attracted a a significant following, especially of young people. But it wasn't before long, even in those days, that his practices, his style attracted negative attention because he had a habit of getting people to work on his um, work projects. He had a construction company at one stage and uh, the young people who came to him just happened to be ended up working totally for free and long hours on his projects. So he uh, got into trouble then. And his style, he's, he inspired a certain degree of unquestioning belief among his followers. And I think even in those days, I think in the early, even in the late 70s, early 80s, he had people, parents coming to him and physically wrestling their children away and really it's all gone from there and the theology is most unusual um anyway we can get into that but that's basically how it all began when you have a something that is defined as a cult you know you've already mentioned some of the telltale signs uh, another one is that it operates on its own without being a part of a larger organization and even if it calls itself let's say a christian group it often has its own theology it has something that really is a departure in every way from mainstream and which then often means that no one's watching There isn't a governing body, there isn't a board of ethics, there isn't somebody who can watch and see what's going on. And there's also no one who has any more power than the leader. The leader answers to no one. And when you have someone who takes advantage, that's a dangerous situation, of course, because then, you know, he'll say or do whatever. But if he then says that he speaks for God, then people can't argue with it. They can't say no, because then they're disrespecting God or that might be punishable. So they often have it sort of wrapped up in a bow, you know, just like, "Mm, can't really fight this. Uh, And you have no power, no say. There was something also about that they were in the news every once in a while. And I have had a number of clients who have been in the group. People actually more, more recently, and I got his permission, even though I won't share his name, but I got his permission to share a bit of the story just in case anyone knew him because he said his family had been involved in this group for a very long time. That when he left with his wife and kids, the kids actually didn't want to go. This was the world they knew. And and it was very overwhelming for the children. They felt they were being taken out of something. When he was really trying to save them because of all of the corporal punishment there. And he had to learn how to be a husband without seeing his wife as less than him. And he said he had to take classes on human rights, too. And to learn that a woman has equal rights, that it's not okay for him to just treat her a certain way because she's female and what misogyny means that it's a thing and how you define it and how he's been living that way. And so he's still in the process of learning. He actually had to visualize his wife being the same height as him in his mind so he could see that she had equal power and equal rights. It's been very, very interesting to work with him. That's incredible. What a story. Yeah. And then he will stop for a while being sure that they that he's doing something wrong and that it's punishable by God, just that he's talking about this. Then he'll get his nerve up again and <laughs> call and we'll have some more sessions. It's been slow going, actually. And he's a 12 tribes member. Yeah. He was. That's amazing. That The visualization technique, I've never heard that. That's very, very interesting. Yeah, he saw, he was just watching YouTube videos and they said sometimes if you want to see someone as equal, they were actually doing it in terms of races. You want to see someone as equal, picture them eye to eye. And he thought, how do I picture my wife eye to eye? I'm going to picture her the same height, which was very interesting. And a lot of people last year heard about them because of the Marshall Fire in Colorado and then wondering about the Yellow Deli that they own. I don't know where they are on that and if they still own it in Boulder. But people were thinking, oh, what is this group? And there have been other fires also associated with the group, which has been interesting. But this one really made the news. So the fact that it's racist, misogynistic, homophobic, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I see that a lot in my work. I don't mean to downplay any of those. All of those are equally horrific. But I'm wondering just about 
this group when you said that it has its own theology. So let's dive into that. What is their theology? How is it different? They're a funny blend of Judaism and Christianity, and they're millenarian. They believe they're preparing for the end of the world, and their role in that particular part of history is going to be to train up an army of 144,000 perfect, pure, sinless boy warriors, okay? So that's their particular role. That's their special mission, okay? And to train up this army of 144,000 men, child, who can go out to defeat Satan during the Battle of Armageddon, okay, in the end times. To do this, they have to raise this army uh, and they're going to be... <laughs> You're going to be doing it for a long time because the group is relatively small, although it's um, spread worldwide, uh, but it's really malignant. And the reason it's malignant is because of this because of this mission they have to raise an army of, of totally obedient, unthinking, extremely disciplined boy warriors. They believe in extremely full-on discipline, unquestioning corporal punishment. So if the children in the 12 tribes, disobey an adult, any adult, doesn't have to be their parents, they receive a beating with a, with a rod, which is kept often kept above the door ledge in every room. So they must obey their parent on the first command. Okay, so they're across the yard, come here. If they don't come across immediately, they receive a beating. If any other adult in the compound in the community tells them to do the same, that adult is empowered to do the beating. So children who are perceived as being perhaps rebellious or disobedient or uh, having their own mind, particularly having their own mind is thinking for themselves can be one of the worst sins in the group. But also if they play games, distractions are seen as something that's silly and ungodly and a waste of time. So games, having lollies, having any imaginary games as well, games of fantasy, playing with dolls, books that are full of made-up stories, this sort of stuff. It's, you know, that's totally, totally forbidden and punishable by really strong beatings. And this has, this has a really dangerous and damaging effect on people. It's one of the most damaging aspects of the group. I've spoken to kids who've come out and uh, been beaten senseless by their parents and by other adults from a very young age. I'm talking from being a baby. Some of the accounts we have in the group is eight-month-olds being beaten for wriggling around on the table when they're having their nappy changed. It's not being able to stand still at group meetings. So wriggling around, moving their legs not singing properly, not answering immediately, not coming on the first command. It's the corporal punishment, which is one of the most disturbing elements of the group. It leaves lasting damage. Right. And I, oh, it's horrific. And to think also about eight-month-old, I mean, no one wants to think about that, about those kids that young. There is a genuine lack of understanding about child development also. And that what they're doing is what they're naturally supposed to be doing. And they're learning how they're wriggling in part because they're learning their balance and they're learning how to use their muscles and coordinate the muscles. I mean, it's all natural. It's all good. I know kids in this group who were beaten for um, spelling something. It was wasting anything. and But meanwhile, they didn't have the hand-eye coordination. They were given really adult tasks and set up to fail them, right? Having to stand still for so long, having to pay attention for so long. What's also true is that if you're put in a stressful situation where reality is so painful, you do dissociate more. You're going to have trouble focusing. You're going to have trouble sitting still. So they're creating the situation where kids are probably going to get beaten more because of the stress that they're put under. I mean, there's sort of no way out, it seems. Another really disturbing element that um, bothered me deeply, particularly about the children, was that coupled with this extremely harsh discipline was the reluctance to take people to doctors or, or the hospital when they needed it. So the issue of beatings, severe discipline, can have a really bad, a terrible kind of interaction with mental illness. So 
what happens and what we saw repeatedly, but in particularly in one tragic instance in in our podcast, was the case of a young person who was beaten repeatedly in the Sydney community. He obviously had serious psychiatric issues from a young age, but he was never attended to. He was never, it's part of the group's uh, core belief to not partake in, not be a part of modern medicine, not go to hospital if you're sick, not see a doctor if you're unwell. So this child was never properly attended to, even though he appeared to be to everybody, well, to certain people in the community to be schizophrenic. He subsequently left and he uh, went on, once he left, to kill another member of the community, a senior member of the community who was known to him in a really violent way, uh, murdered him, burnt, burnt the house down with the man's body in it. And it's a really good example of how this heavy discipline can damage a person and have tragic outcomes when it's coupled with mental illness. I think that's really that, and we cover that in, in the podcast. It was really touching. You know, cultic groups don't know what to do with mental illness, right? Even just counseling, just helping someone with their emotions. Usually you're not even allowed to be angry. Um, you're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to feel certain feelings that you're not supposed to feel because it shows that you're not spiritual or that you're not getting it or you're not appreciating all that's being done for you and you're not strong because these are considered weak if you're sad, especially if you're feeling depressed or if you have uh, anxiety that's considered a weakness in so many of these groups, especially militaristic groups where there is no patience for any of that. And then people are are left to really languish without receiving the support, the help, the intervention that they could get. There's so much that I see that was preventable. You know, the walking wounded who I work with, there was no reason for them to be wounded. I mean, that so much of it could have really been prevented. And then chaos ensues because you have people who haven't learned, first of all, how to manage their emotions or even know that it's okay to have them. And they don't also know that there are resources for them because they're not taken to them. So even if they come out, they wouldn't know to seek counseling. Or if they did, there there would be such a built-in stigma to it that they probably wouldn't go ahead and seek it. You know, I mean, it's, it's a tragic story. And I'm, I'm so sorry that happened for, for so many reasons. Well, I mean, the thing that really affected me about that was that if you have a child of your own, um, any young person, you want to give them all your help, all the help you can, and you do anything to help that child. And this kid was left to languish and and have his condition get worse and worse until it was irremediable and it had tragic outcomes. He was never met with the love and care that he should have received. And as a parent, as any human being, I found that particularly touching. Right. And so interesting, too. I work with a lot of people who, when they first come out of a group, are often diagnosed as having some uh, a psychiatric disorder if they're receiving treatment because there's a dissociative part of them, because they're thinking thoughts that aren't necessarily grounded, because they've been taught to see things that aren't there and hear things and and they feel that there's a spirit inside of them, etc. And, you know, you sit down with a counselor and you say that, you know, um, this spirit is talking through me or is I'm a channeler for something else. It doesn't go over very well. Well, you know, with the psychological community. And I've t- I've talked to a lot of people, you know, I wish there were more people in the therapeutic community who were listening or psychiatrics who were listening. And, and maybe this can be passed along. But if there, yes, there are some people who do have psychiatric disorders and there are other people who have what I would call situational disorders where they have been raised with this sort of psychosis or what would be seen as a psychotic kind of thinking. And, you know, people raised in groups where they're told anything that you see and feel and taste, et cetera, that's all not real. Only the invisible things are real. There's more than one group that's like that. So can you imagine coming out and just relating to the world and not seeming psychotic yourself? But that was just the teaching. So I think to give people a chance to just land and be in the world, kind of figure out 
what is quote unquote normal way of thinking. And I'll, I'll always put the word normal in quotes because it's different for everyone. I mean, a lot of people hear that if they're having that or they're having psychosis, that's the devil. And they think they have, they need an exorcism, not medication, you know? Yeah. It's like going back in time. I mean, I've done, I've done stories um, in Sri Lanka, in Iran, you know, um, for the magazine, Brazil, um, Asia, Africa, and worked with in remote and pre-development communities, primitive communities, who who believe that mental health issues, uh, particularly particularly things uh, like schizophrenia, are the ultimate expression of evil. And so, not only do these people have <laughs> terrible struggles that are psychosis that are absolutely terrifying and horrific in their own right, but they're treated like like they're the ones to blame. So you can just imagine the, the damage that does. Exactly. The exploitation, the slave labor, basically, that existed in this group. You you know much more about it because you've really, really studied it. I see the fallout from that where people leave with nothing. They really weren't able to make a living or they really didn't learn how to have certain skills that really were marketable. They learned how to do what what fed the machine, you know, in that group. And they also don't know when it's okay to say they need to rest and put their feet up and sleep because you were never done. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that, what you noticed with the, the exploitation, with the labor in this group. 12 tribes are actually really industrious and they're very um, entrepreneurial. They, even though they're very, they believe that in a very simple version of uh, Christianity, they operate a really quite sophisticated network of businesses. And this includes construction companies, painting networks, um, all sorts of factories, electrical factories, soap factories, uh, demolition crews, food, food's a big part, cafes, restaurants. Australia, they operate a lot of mobile cafes, so they go to festivals like music festivals and um, they will make hundreds and thousands of dollars in a, in a week or a weekend. Um, so they know how to, how to make money. And one of the reasons they are able to make such an amount of money, such, such great amounts of money is because they have their members work for free. So I'm talking totally for free. So they instance that we uh, with the couple that we follow and whose story is quite remarkable in our podcast he worked in all sorts of places for the group but particularly in a bakery at one stage where he was doing 15 hour days regularly okay sleeping on the floor of the bakery getting up at 3 a.m preparing everything baking thousands of buns with his son young son who was then about 12 so no school for the kid working their butts off for no money, not a cent. Didn't see anything, okay? They're seen as volunteers, every start, every every cult member, group member. And so, like you were saying, they come out of this group with skills but no formal qualifications and, most importantly, no money. They come out with nothing. These people have worked themselves to the bone and they come out with nothing. And so... I see it again and again, you'd see it again with other groups, but this is particularly so with 12 tribes for whom work is, you know, they work six days a week. And one of the other really sad aspects of this is that because they're so occupied and kept so busy and worked so hard, they don't, people in there said, you know, it wasn't even, after a while it wasn't, it was the work, obviously the the labour that was exacting and exhausting for them, but it was the fact that they never got time to themselves. So they never got time to just be themselves, to sit with themselves in a quiet space, to think, to have their own thoughts, to do their own thing, like all of us do in a normal normal community or situation. They never got to sit there and look at the sky, to have their own thoughts. And that, in a funny way, was a, a, was a, a theft of their personhood. To me, that was really affecting as well, I thought, as someone who often sits looking at the sky and not doing anything, <laughs> um, I thought what a beautiful part of life that is and to have that taken from you and you can't get that back. That's your that's life. You don't get those minutes and seconds back, those days where you could be yourself and have your own thoughts and 
And that was part of the what was taken from them when they were under this coercive state. You know, you forget it's coercion. It's um, coercive control. These people, one thing that really annoyed me, you know, when doing this podcast, and probably, you probably see it as well a lot, is people saying, oh, this is ridiculous. Why don't these people just leave? You know, why did they join this group? It's so stupid, you know, why? And they, so people have very little sympathy. And what I say to them is, okay, all right, so let's just begin again. So nobody, for one thing, joins a cult. They're, idea, they're idealists, you know. This is Mark and Rose in, this, in, the, in the 12 tribes who we, whose remarkable journey we track, right? They didn't join a cult. They were idealists, okay? They were young people with an ideal about living in a communal setting, growing food for one another, providing their time and love to other people. There's nothing wrong with that. People, it's essentially what everybody wants to do, to be loved and love, right? And so all, their only crime was to be idealistic. Now, that over time, they were, they were indoctrinated and coerced into behaviours that, that made them not themselves. And it's like being in a DV or domestic violence situation. Would you say to, would you say to a wife who was caught in one of these coercive relationships and being beaten, oh, you're stupid, you're an idiot, why don't you just walk out? It's not that simple. There are reasons why these people stay in these destructive relationships. There are reasons why women are caught up in, in violence, family violence. It's not as simple as just walking out the door and beginning your life again. For the reasons you pointed out before, in many cases they don't have much of a life on the outside to go to, particularly with the 12 tribes. They, they've given up their names. They get a, they get a, a community name, which is a Hebrew name. They, they are encouraged strongly to leave behind their family, friend, their family and their friends from outside in the worldly world, in the modern world, so they become increasingly isolated from what they knew before. And it's, so it's not as, you know, if they were to leave, what do they go to? You know, they don't have any skills. They don't have any money. Often they don't have any clothes. You know, they get the, the group's clothes. And when they leave, what do they take with them? Where do they go? They don't, often don't have any friends left or family on the outside. It's just not as easy as what people think, as people think. Right. And I'm really glad you're bringing that up. It is something that's asked a lot and it is often said with, a measure of criticism and people who are in abusive relationships, uh, no matter the gender, are often asked, why are you staying or why did you stay? And I actually, I have something, uh, it's a video that I put together that is, it says, why did I stay? Because it is, it's asked all the time. I think it is good for people to have an answer. And I also think it's good that if people are asked that question, they can offer an answer and then change to a more important subject. Because when the listener turns the focus on the victim, then I think that's a very uncomfortable place for the victim to be in that conversation. And that's also not where the focus should be. It's like low-hanging fruit, you know, for the listener. It's victim blaming. It's crazy. You wouldn't do that with a Anybody who's who's suffered a crime, you wouldn't, it's just, but people seem to think it's okay with people who've been in these high control groups. It's just Oh, yeah, I know. Well, I, I mean, there are a lot of people who respond certain ways to conversations where they think it's okay. Like if someone says, oh, I'm now dating someone of the same gender. Well, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, did I ask you how you felt? Like, I don't know why you're telling me suddenly how you feel. And also, oh, I was in an abusive relationship for a period of time. Why did you, I wouldn't have stayed? I would have known. I would have. I, you people posture in this very kind of uncomfortable and unseemly way. I think it's like a power play, but that's not the right time for that. People often stay for exactly what you're talking about, but also because they don't know that it's an option to leave. They're often so afraid of disappointing their family who's there or disappointing the leader or they think God wants them to stay. So if they leave, then they're leaving God or now they're going to be part of the worldly world, which they have learned to have be so demonized. Do they want to fall from grace and be part of that? Not only demonized, but they're terrified of it. I mean, in the 12 tribes, they're, they're told that um, there is no life outside and the the world outside is irredeemably cursed. They say, you'll turn gay, you know, as if this is the worst thing in the world, right? Right. And that also, that happens. People don't turn 
Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, you'll burn in the lake of fire for a thousand years. You will end up on a street corner selling your body. You will die in a car crash. You know, if they leave, not only do they have those conditional circumstantial elements that keep them in the group, but they're taught, especially the people who've grown up there, the generational, intergenerational, the young kids who've been born into the group. Can you imagine being taught from from the age of infancy that if you were to leave your household, leave that group, then you're going to burn for hell for a thousand years or that you're going to end up selling your body on the street, becoming a prostitute, or you'll die in a car crash. You're not going to leave. No, God, no. And I also want to say from talking to now, you know, a thousand former cult members, I I only say that because I want people to understand this isn't just one person who has said this to me. This is many, many people who have said that they didn't realize until they left that they were far safer outside of the group than they ever knew was possible, but that they ever could be while in it. And that people were much nicer (laughs) Yes, there were going to be some people who were judgmental, et cetera, but that people could suddenly accept them unconditionally and that they didn't have to believe a certain way in order to be loved, that people would actually offer support and and just general kindness, which they hadn't experienced within the group. So very often people are made to feel fearful of the world that's actually going to be much nicer to them. What I find really interesting with these groups, and particularly the 12 tribes, is the judgmental nature of these groups. I mean, they begin as in the cradle of Christianity. They, they begin in a belief that should be the ultimately nurturing set of um, circumstances where you are forgiven, the very basis of uh, godly, that you will be forgiven for sin. This has turned in the 12 tribes into the most punishing, unforgiving highly judgmental, dangerously, lethally judgmental circumstances where people are made to feel guilty uh, for any indiscretion, for any perceived bad thought, for the most banal so-called sins, you know, wriggling around on a table when you're a child, having perceived bad thoughts, um, having to admit in a communal setting to how bad you are so you get shamed publicly, which is a big part of the 12 tribes. So at some stage, this it's curious how that forgiving the current, the, the very basis of Christianity and be, that you, are, you, you will be forgiven is turned on its head. And so the group becomes this judging machine where people are judged so harshly that they feel all pervasive sense of dread and guilt. And once they leave, what I found is that once they leave, particularly with our American members that we talk to, they find that Suvav, who's, a, who's one of the most beautiful guys who was caught in there for ages and who was subsequently helped he, all of his immediate family members escape one by one, his siblings. Incredible story. That's in the pod as well. What he found was that on the outside, he was treated with so much more kindness, so much more forgiveness. People would, he said, oh, you know, people would give me the shirt off their back when I, when I left, but do anything to help me, which was quite the opposite in the group where I was judged constantly for every thought, every behaviour, made to feel terrible all the way through. So that's a fascinating inversion of those values. A lot of cultic groups are um, very gossipy. They have like their KGB style, you know, in-house people who report on each other. And you're also, for that person's benefit somehow, it's often how it's seen. You can report any minor infraction to the leadership for their benefit. And uh, it's not, it's just so that you think out of the goodness of your heart, you're doing something for someone by telling on them. But it's so the leader knows who to come down really harshly on and who to watch. But yeah, the judgment is is extremely harsh. And also that you don't have to earn the right to receive kindness or you don't have to give back in order to receive, like the giving the shirt off your back to someone, they might think, what are you up to? And now, you know, am I indebted to you? Because that's so much of what happens in the group that you don't get anything for, for free. I mean, another reason that people might not leave, they don't feel deserving a lot of the time of having a good, happy life. And it's terrible. Again, it's just instilling guilt in people. As Han, who was the American senior American leader who was sent out here in the mid-90s to establish a community in Australia, he was saying that once you, well, one thing he said also was that the game is rigged with religion. He had some fascinating insights 
So one of his central points that he made was that, you know, with religion you're told that you're born with sin, okay, and the only way you can get out from under that rock is to believe in God, okay, give your life to God. Now this whole belief is turbocharged in the 12 tribes. It is absolutely given rocket fuel uh, by that system of recrimination and guilt and, as you say, the gossip and the, the way that close friends and family members are encouraged to inform upon one another. That was one of the most sinister elements that I found with the 12 tribes. People I talked to, couples, Mark and Rose, the Aussie couple we follow through, they were encouraged to inform on one another about their behaviour, about their unwillingness to beat their children, about their unwillingness, um, about their bad thoughts, perceived bad thoughts, about their bad parenting. And so they drove, you know, this group drives a wedge between people who should be loving one another. That's one of the most evil elements, I thought, that I bring people together. Right. In Scientology, there is uh, something called a KR, which stands for Knowledge Report. And you are supposed to write up your loved one if you think that they haven't done what they're supposed to do. You can write up your mother, your father, your child. And a KR stays in your file forever. And you basically have to do their form of penance for it and work that much harder. But you think that you're doing something good. A lot of people leave having a lot of guilt about the things that they were made to feel they were doing on behalf of their family. It turned out it was just on behalf of the group to keep tabs on what everyone was doing. But also when people see pictures of like Gene Spriggs, um, I, I know since passed away, they'll wonder what was so charismatic about him? Like, what is his deal? How did he wield so much power over this group? That's a really good question because toward the end of his life, uh, you know, we've heard all sorts of differing accounts that he wasn't an inspiring character, that he wasn't particularly charismatic. So even in the people's minds in the, in the group, they were in two minds. You hear people going, oh, he was incredibly charismatic. He had a real presence. And other people were like, no, he didn't. He was, just an, he was just an old man. But we had been taught to believe that everything that came out of his mouth, you know, he he had a direct pipeline to God. And so by that time we had completely taken by him and under his sway. But in the beginning, I think, yes, he was. He must have been quite a figure. And we're, I've spoken to people who were back then who said, yeah, yeah, he was a really powerful, he was a good-looking guy who had a real way about him who'd worked as a school guidance counsellor and who knew how to relate to people and who had quite a presence when he entered a room. So that's how he began. Now, though, I found it quite interesting as the group developed, the person who really, who we hear quite often, (laughs) who really wore the pants, so to speak, was his wife and um, Heimek, Marsha. Now, she, she became his partner interestingly, when he was still married for a so-called inverted commas godly man. So they got together. um, They met in the Rocky Mountains when he was evangelising. He met her in a ski resort. She was a bit of a ski bunny, got together. And as time went on, she became more and more important to the teaching. She often wrote a lot of the really fundamentalist teachings among the most damaging teachings, particularly regarding child rearing about being super disciplined, about um, enforcing rules to with corporal punishment, uh, about the judgments. Um, she wrote, she helped write a 350-page child training manual that is given to every parent in the group. And all these parents, you know, they by that by the time they're, you know, inducted into the central teachings, they're well and truly under the sway and they get this book. And as Rose told me, once she was given this book, she thought it was this the most treasured document that she followed down to the down to the letter. So anyway, I got off the track there. But yes, I think that in the beginning he was highly charismatic and he, he could certainly hold a space. After time, though, I think that definitely his wife kind of took over to a degree, became the eminent scree behind it all. You know, she's still around. So we're just, it's all in flux at the moment with, with um, Spriggs having died. Who knows? Who knows it's going to take over? Right. And some groups actually um, have a certain amount of validity to the to the members when they are 
they have leaders who are like parental figures. So they can have sort of a mother and a father figure. And so they feel that really solidifies a sense of family. And they might even trust what a woman says about child rearing, no matter how horribly abusive it is, thinking that it's coming from this kind of maternal place, which is horrifying to think about. A lot of things are used even in general ways if there is a hurricane or if there's an earthquake, if there's anything. It's because those people are not believers or someone who knows someone who died or it's in their family, that's because they sinned and this is how everyone needed to pay. So it's always that it's someone's fault in the group, but it's never the leader's fault. No. And, you know, subsequent, you know, people will leave and develop mental illnesses. Hello, I wonder why. And then this is blamed on them as well. This is blamed on their, attributed to them leaving. Look what happened to him. Look what happened to him. He left and then he turned into a so-called nutcase. He, you know, his life fell apart. And we see that again and again. It's just classic, like you say, it's classic gaslighting, blaming the victim. Uh, right. And I'm now that you've had this ability to to be intertwined with these people who have left, I'm wondering what you've noticed about the challenges that they've gone through. And I want people certainly to see your work. And so you don't have to answer all the questions here. Um, but just I think there are times that people are they assume that some of the obvious things are going to be challenges in people's lives. And then there's some that are not so obvious somewhere people really are not equipped to even just feel confident that they are seeing things the right way or that they have the right to say what happened to them and just, you know, kind of asserting yourself and feeling like you are thinking the quote unquote right way about something. I mean, that's quite a challenge. So what have you noticed with these people who you've gotten to know, I'm sure quite well, what are the challenges they face having left? Well, I think first and foremost, the obvious challenge and what comes as a surprise is being able to function and survive economically. I mean, money, they leave with nothing. Can you imagine leaving a group and suddenly being thrust into the world without a phone account, without never having to had manage a bank account, never having to organise a mortgage lease, uh, you know, rent an apartment? How do you go about that? You know, one of the couples we talked to had children. They were trying to get set up, see a dentist, but they had to have uh, medical records. They had to have certain documents to prove that their children have been immunised, all that sort of stuff. So you're remaking the most basic, you're, you're trying to set up from a standing start the most basic elements of, a, of life in society as we know it. So... It's hard, you know, managing these things, your finances, getting ahead and getting finding your way through life, modern life is difficult enough. But imagine being dropped in that from a standing start and having to find your way, having been kept away from contemporary, the contemporary world so you don't know how to get a phone plan. You don't know how to uh, get on the internet and organise stuff. You don't know how to interact with government. That's just the beginning. Right. And how do you explain to people why you don't know how to do this and how come you haven't ever done it before? Yeah, embarrassing. It's embarrassing. A lot of people are really embarrassed and they're shamed by the fact that they got gulled. They're shamed by the fact that they got sucked into these groups. Yeah. So that it's not like you come out and go, oh, well, I've, you know, I was raised, I joined a, <laughs> I joined a, in quote, cult 20 years ago and now my life, and my life's been on pause for the last 20 years and now I've got to start again. Hello, can you help me? No, it's it's really it's really embarrassing and it's people don't want to come out with that. Also another thing I've found is we're trying to encourage people who've left the, left the group here to make wage claims. So they've worked for quote unquote for free um, voluntarily so they haven't been paid a single cent not a cent for years of slave labour, what amounts to slave labour. Indeed, they've been taken court and they're being pursued for, for labour violations. Now, um, we're in Australia, we're trying desperately to get some of these members to lodge wage claims, which involves, which is complicated by the fact that they are regarded in many instances as having been volunteers. So it's complex here. Uh, employment law, we're trying to find our way through that. And also, we're trying to find people who are willing to go through that you know you've left and you're exhausted you've been beaten down you feel really crap about yourself anyway on multiple levels um you feel stupid you feel guilty you feel afraid 
do you really want to go through and uh, get yourself entangled in the legal process into a, you know, in a long and, and grueling legal battle to get money from this group who, you know, will hang on to every cent? No, it's exhausting. So even though we've got lawyers here, um, an employment lawyer here who, who's like, yeah, I'll talk to these people free. I'll, I'll, you know, give them advice and, you know, I'm willing to do this. It's so hard finding someone who says, yeah, you know, I want to go after it. Right. So I know we're about done with time and I, I want to give you a chance to talk about the, the takeaways from this, the things that have really stayed with you, the the lessons we can learn from really learning about groups like this, about human nature, about control. What has really risen to the top in terms of the, the things that have and are going to have a lasting impact on you, even just researching them? One of the most distressing elements and the thing that I learned that was most destructive about the group was the way that they used basic human nature to twist people against themselves. So people who are at the centre of our podcast were idealists. There's no crime in being idealistic. You know, there's no, there's no crime in wanting to live and love one another and be in harmony with nature and um, not not be a part of um, modern society, which on many levels is really pernicious and a destructive force. They didn't want a free ride. They didn't want to be lazy. They weren't lazy people, man. As they showed, they were really hardworking, diligent people. And for that idealism, they were punished and they were taken advantage of. So that really, that really stayed with me and lit a fire underneath me to pursue the group. And the, the way that they divided families is something that also really motivated me, made me sad, really, really made, touched me and made me sad. And it's really been great to be able to talk to you about it here. I really appreciate it. Of course, of course. And I'm so glad you're doing this work. So tell us about where people can find this. Well, it's called Inside the Tribe. Uh, It's a nine-part documentary-style podcast. You can find it where you get your podcasts. So Okay. And also in terms of the other work that you've done and, you know, being in this business for a while, I'm sure you've done a lot of different explorations into different things and different subjects. Where can people find other work that you've done? Just Google my name, Tim Elliott, Elliott with a double L and double T. I work for, as a senior writer for the Sydney Morning Herald in, in Australia, and which is probably the, the biggest paper here. My work is out there. I've worked on for the last 17 years for the paper. I've um, won multiple awards here, especially been nominated for a Walkley Award, which is basically the equivalent of your Pulitzers. The thing I'm really proud of, though, is the work I've done on this group and pursuing this group and, and unpacking it and let people understand it. Wonderful. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm so glad that you covered this group. It affected many people. And I like when people scratch the surface. Um, so thank you. Thank you again. No, thank you so much, Rachel. It's been fantastic. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for your reporting on this and thank you for coming on the show, for wanting to come here to share so much of what you've learned. Because as with every one of these stories, We learn about a particular occurrence, we learn about a particular group, but really we learn about so much, about human nature, about what people are made to follow, what people can start to believe is the truth. There are so many things that were made up in the 12 tribes out of whole cloth, not dissimilar from many other groups, just the whole idea of there are going to be 144,000 pure men without sin disciplined boy warriors to fight Satan at Armageddon. Now, for some people, that's going to be something that they're going to aspire to be their whole lives. And for others, they're going to listen to it and think someone just made that up. Because it is, when you look at it from afar, when you also start to doubt the source of that information, you can see that so much of this is storytelling that is made into truth, that is made into what guides people, motivates people, what people want to 
aspire to be like the people who also, I'm sure, who felt less than because they weren't one of these pure men without sin. What's also true about so many of these teachings and so many of these groups is that the leader, not always, but very often, the leader is the one who, if we're going to talk about sin, is knee deep in being sinful, but will hold other people up to this kind of superhuman standard of no sin as though it is the best way to be, the only way to be. And then people can think that the leader must also be above reproach, above sin, if it's something they care so much about, if it is the way to be in this world. There's so much about this story that is disturbing and upsetting. It is so good that people are able to leave this group, though. It is so good when people contact me and say that they were raised in it or they got involved and they raised their kids in it, and now they're trying to heal They're trying to heal themselves. They're trying to heal their family. They're trying to learn how to feel okay about themselves without this teaching, without being a part of this. But, and I love this part of it usually, they want to learn how to raise their kids without abuse. They want to learn how to raise their kids without fear because the way they learn to raise them in the group, now they see is so dangerously abusive. One of the things that I've talked about on the podcast before that I want to be able to get into, as Tim talks about how this group is so racist and misogynistic, homophobic, again, not dissimilar from many other groups, there is something about kids raised in this group where they really are not allowed to be themselves. And what does it mean to be yourself? It means to have your own preferences. It means to know what you like and be able to state it, to have it. It also means at times having your imagination, your fantasy play. When people come out of cults and then someone asks them a very simple question like, What would you like to do tonight? I think people don't realize what a monumental question they're asking. What do I want to do? I have no idea. There's no one standing right next to them telling them what they want to do, quote unquote. And sometimes they don't know. But it's a very powerful question because, again, so many people coming out of this find that they are shy. They're diffident, they're deferential. They defer to the people around them to decide because they don't know. And they also don't know that it's okay for them to have an opinion about what they like. Having kids, some of whom were into video games, one of whom was very involved in Dungeons and Dragons, I did not have an appreciation for this game. It is beyond what you can imagine, because it's all in the imagination. You can make it anything you want it to be. And that is fantastic. And that's a gift. Within cults, as with most things that are cultic, there's this black and white thinking that somehow you need to follow by all the rules. You need to do things just so, or you're going to be getting out of control or being sinful. That somehow you can't draw whatever you want, have your own likes and dislikes, create something imaginative and fantastical when you are doing art, when you are imagining, when you're dreaming, when you're conjuring up games. But you can be both and you can do both. Plenty of people I know have nine to five jobs, but on the weekend do something really out there or artistic and they They can be artistic and they can be creative and still have this other part of them that follows by rules. And that's the balance of life. And it's possible. It's never either or. So one of the first things that people will look for when they get involved in a group is how much it tells them what to think. And sometimes for some people, that's very attractive. They don't want to have life be so open-ended They don't want to have life be so without rules. We're about to be approaching 
the Jewish holiday of Passover. And one of the things that I've always found very interesting about the celebration of Passover is that it's a celebration of freedom, of being slaves and becoming free. But you follow by something as you're doing the Passover Seder called a Haggadah. And that's sort of the prayer book of the Seder. Haggadah comes from the word lahagid, to tell. But the word Seder means order. And so there is an order to the celebration of freedom. You want to make sure that you hit all the points, that you tell the stories, that you retell the story from generation to generation about acceptance of the stranger, about the need for freedom, for questioning authority. But there is also a way to do it where you have a structure so that you make sure you say the things that you're supposed to say, even while you're celebrating freedom. It can be done that you can have both. No one should tell you otherwise. Anyone who takes away your freedom, your imagination, your ability to have creativity is someone who doesn't care about you, someone who doesn't actually ever want to know you, and they won't if they won't get to see what you can create when you push the chains away and you get to have your freedom. So be out and proud and creative and imaginative and enjoy and honor the fact that your mind can give you that, can give you that symbol of freedom. Thank you to Tim. Thank you for all the work that he has done over the years to expose things that needed to have been exposed. I'm sure he will continue to do wonderful work as I have a feeling he already is. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.